All year round, Frontier Home Products and Design has what you need to make your home comfortable and beautiful. Relax on a new timber tech deck designed by Frontier's experts. A new fireplace from Frontier Home Products Fireplace Gallery adds warmth and serenity to any home. Beauty and versatility at Frontier Home Products and Design Center, 4213 Peachtree, 5th next to the Bayfront Highway. Frontier Home Products and Design Center. Discover a new frontier. PA contractor number PA039007. Welcome to TalkErie.com's Joel Natale Show, Erie, Pennsylvania's daily podcast. Every day, we tackle the biggest issues that the Erie PA region faces. Stay informed and involved as we advance the narrative of Erie. Now, here's Joel Natale. It is absolutely my pleasure to introduce to you uh, Steve Scully. He is the Senior Vice President of Communications at the Bipartisan Policy Center, also the host of the briefing on Sirius XM's POTUS channel. Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Hey, Joel, I finally made it. I'm finally on your show. So <laughs> this is a crowning achievement. Thank oh you for the invitation. I appreciate it. All right, tell us where you, where you're calling, you know, where you're calling in from, and uh, what's the what's the lay of the land of your current uh, situation? Because you're doing a couple different things right now, you know. Yeah, and I'm loving all of it, uh, especially as we move into the campaign election year. I've covered every campaign nationally since 1992, so that streak will continue in my partnership with SiriusXM. And as you mentioned, I do I follow Michael Smirconish, uh, which is how I landed at SiriusXM. I was filling in for him. And then the whole Chris Cuomo thing kind of blew up and they wanted somebody who was really straight down the middle. And that fit into my work at C-SPAN and my work here at the Bipartisan Policy Center. And so we're able to showcase the policy and politics of what we do here, but also produce a show two hours a day uh, that really showcases uh, every side of an issue. Uh, today, we spent a great deal of time focusing on the on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment and uh, Jeffrey Wilson from the Constitution Center. But it's really a chance to educate, to get people something that you're not going to get on cable television. It's not my opinion. It's the opinions across the board. And that's really been the mission for the last two years since I've been doing it on SiriusXM. It really is gratifying to know that you're on the radio, too, because, you know, because radio is one of those things that, you know, a lot, you know, if you talk to the media buyers, radio is kind of a foregone, uh, you know, kind of a uh, an ancient media. And here it is that some of our best and brightest are embedded in radio and still making it happen here, you know. Well, think of some of my colleagues, Megan Kelly, who's on the Triumph Channel, Michael Smirconish, Laura Coates begins the day every day, seven to nine, and she's on 11 o'clock at night on CNN. Dan Abrams follows my program on, uh, and he's also the host on News Nation. So we have, there's a lot of synergy. And what is incredible, as I've really now worked for SiriusXM, is that the way they are able to repurpose the audio on so many different levels. They have 40 million subscribers, and they repurpose it with podcasts, the best of the weekend, uh, the video component. And we're reaching an audience that really cable is not able to reach in a very different way. I've had more feedback from doing SiriusXM than I've often gotten on C-SPAN, simply because it's getting to so many different uh, places in so many different formats. That's it's amazing. The um, I I I love I love that you're able to take a deep dive with a two hour show on one topic. And so, what did you conclude about uh, Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment today? What what were some of the rising points? Would you say? Um, 
the founders were not clear. I mean, <laughs> if you read if you read it, Joel, yeah. you understand that there's a lot of loopholes for Donald Trump. And, and look, I, I think I tend to agree with what I think we're hearing from all sides of the aisle is that the courts should not decide who should be on the ballot. Right. It should be decided by the voters. Now, if Donald Trump were convicted and had gone through the entire legal process, you might have an argument that you could keep him off the ballot. But in my conversation today with also the Secretary of State from Maine and earlier this week, the Secretary of State from Colorado, they fully knew that by doing what they did, by this the court ruling in Colorado and the decision by the Maine Secretary of State, Secretary Bellows, that this is going to go to the courts, right. which is exactly what Donald Trump wanted. But it should be the voters, not the courts, that should decide elections. And of course, we saw that in 2000, but that came after the election, Bush v. Gore, that 5-4 ruling. What's significant is what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks, because buckle up, the court is going to have a huge say in what's going to happen in 2024. My guess is that they will be careful and they will defer to the side of letting voters, not the courts, decide whether a candidate, in this case, Donald Trump, should be on the ballot. And you're, of course, you're talking about the Supreme Court. I'm not sure Supreme that court. the lower courts are going to be that careful. Uh, you they know. may not, but the Supreme Court, I think, yeah. will have to. And, and look, I think, you know, I, I've, I've covered the Supreme Court when I was at C-SPAN. Justice John Roberts, who's been there since, what, 2006, appointed by President George W. Bush, he wants to protect the institution. He knows that the institution is very much at stake and democracy is at stake. And the Supreme Court is one of the, you know, the foundations of our democracy. And so my hope is, it's my hope, that the Supreme Court will be deciding overwhelmingly in favor of keeping Donald Trump's name on the ballot in this case, so that the voters can then decide. Because if that's not the case, we're setting ourselves up for some real challenges in our democracy in 2024. Talk about how that th these kinds of conversations spill over to your work in the bipartisan policy center. What what is the essence of 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 what you what kind of value that the center brings uh, to the to the conversation and to the table? Yeah, I, I'm laughing because you know I get up very early at about five five thirty in the morning to kind of prep for the radio show. Yeah. Then I get to the office and I'm looking for ways of commonality and compromise and coming together. Then I do a two hour our show about all the divisions and how this town is so screwed up. Right. And then I leave the studio and figure out ways that we can kind of come together. Look, one of the things I've done here is try to take a different approach when it comes to selling a message. And they hired me for a very simple reason. They wanted to make sure that we're showcasing the idea of bipartisanship. So what do I mean by that? The Senate project debate. We've had four of them that have been airing on a number of different media channels, including CBS and Fox News, a Democrat and Republican sitting senator debating topics for an hour to an hour and a half. And look, we may or may not have agreement. The first debate was with Bernie Sanders and Lindsey Graham. They agreed on nothing. The last debate that we just did was with uh, Marco Rubio and Chris Murphy. They came together on some areas like guns. So showcasing producing content in a media environment, Joel, that you understand better than anyone else. So rather than just send out news releases and talk about what we're doing, we do it. We have a program called the Congressional Exchange Program, where members of Congress, D's and R's, travel to each other's district. And I should point out that uh, Mike Kelly has agreed to have one of those in Pennsylvania. So sometime later this year, we will bring a Republican member to Erie uh, and figuring out ways that they can work on some areas of agreement. And look, we're not looking for kumbaya moments all the time. I understand the reality of politics. It's a very, very divisive time. The media fractured and polarized. But I can tell you for all of the, you know, 
uh, Lauren Boebert's of the world and Matt Gates of the world, there are 10 other members of Congress that really do want to work across the aisle to get some things done. That is our focus. That's our showcase. And having covered, you know, for a neutral channel like C-SPAN, which was called the Switzerland of the media, right. it really is an extension of my love of politics and public policy to to really wear two hats and, and to do it in a way that is unique, I think, here in D.C. It's also a lot of fun. Would you care to comment on the um, the debate between Governor, Governor DeSantis and Governor Newsom on uh, the Sean Hannity show? What did you think of that? Was that was there value out of that, you think? Oh, sure. For Gavin Newsom in campaign 2028? Absolutely. Uh, he is a very, very shrewd, smart politician. He knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah. It hasn't helped, um, I think, um, Governor DeSantis, but I think the problem is bigger than that for, for Ron DeSantis, is that, you know, in a campaign, it really is the ultimate jobs interview. And he really, at the early start of the campaign, I think stumbled, to be perfectly honest. He didn't connect well with voters. Uh, but also, this is unique. I mean, you have to go back to Grover Cleveland, where we have a former president seeking the nomination again. You and I weren't around when Grover Cleveland was running for president. Would have been fun, though, wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, and so you have the elephant in the room, which is Donald Trump. And um, so I think it benefited Gavin Newsom more so than uh, than Ron DeSantis. And it certainly benefited Fox News because it was a ratings bonanza. I also think Newsom was smart not to have an audience. He insisted that it had to be just the two of them with um, Sean Hannity in, in the room. So I think the way they set it up was interesting. Does it change? Move the needle? Eh, probably not. But I watched it. it it's so it, it's so interesting to watch this campaign at one point, And we have like a, a political conversation. We try to keep the politics uh, at a minimum, of course, the callers like to talk about politics, of course. Of but course. Uh, but uh, on we, we do set aside an hour on Mondays with Dean Pepicello, who's a Harbor Creek Township supervisor, and we talk national politics and local politics. And it, it's interesting to see, at, at one point, I just got exasperated a week ago or so and said, you know what, this thing is over. I can't see the pathway where Donald Trump doesn't get the nomination. Am I wrong on that? Am I just uh, gonna, you know, giving up? Do you think? No, I mean, look, um, Donald Trump is up thirty points, the biggest lead by any modern Republican in Iowa. Uh, he is up in the double digits in New Hampshire. Nikki Haley is making it a race. Uh, even if you take away, e even if Ron DeSantis, for example, dropped out of the race, yeah, those voters are going to go to Donald Trump. If Vivek Ramaswamy drops out of the race, they go to Donald Trump. So even if you get all of the Chris Christie voters and all of the Nikki Haley voters, and I'm averaging it out, but the, the Chris Christie voters will not vote for Trump. But that's in New Hampshire, 12%. The Nikki Haley voters, you could argue a third may do nothing, a third may vote for Trump, and a third may go for somebody else. So even a, in a two-person race, Donald Trump is still the Republican nominee. The party is the party of Donald Trump right now. But it is going to be a fascinating year because you have the court cases, you have the the Biden age issue. You don't know what are the unknowns with an 81 year old president and a 78 year old Republican nominee. And of course, you have the Senate races. Pennsylvania with Dave McCormick and Bob Casey is going to be one of the bellwether races. And oh, by the way, you are in a swing county in a swing state right. and Erie, as it has in the past, as Donald Trump campaigned back in the summer. It's going to be a pivotal uh, area. What as this campaign unfolds, 
Steve Kornacki and I were talking about this the other day. He, of course, has targeted Erie County as the place that will determine how Pennsylvania goes. And I would argue, as Pennsylvania goes, so goes the nation. There's no doubt about it. And and there's that whole thing of five states, 100,000 voters could be the margin for this thing again. Look, I think if Hillary Clinton had campaigned in Erie and done a better job campaigning across Pennsylvania, Donald Trump would have lost. I mean, you look at the margin in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, only about 70,000 votes in three states determined the election of 2016. I mean, she won the popular vote. The polls were right in 2016. She won the popular vote. But that's not how we elect our president. Can we do a little bipartisan thing here? Because sure. I, right now, we are really Trump uh, uh, tripped up by the funding for Ukraine, funding for Israel, and the border situation. And it feels like everybody wants an answer here. And it wasn't it Joe Biden who said, I'm going to add this, uh, this sweetener of border money if you give me my, what I want for Ukraine and Israel. And, and, $14 billion. And so why is this not working? Why is this not passing? It looks like I thought he would have checked all the boxes here, Steve. So you mean that during an election year, one political party would want to use this as a cudgel against another, another political party? Do you, are you telling me that there's politics, Joel, involved in what's <laughs> happening here in Washington? I am shocked to think you would say that, especially as we embark on a key presidential election year. Um, That's a total Casablanca answer. I'm shocked. I'm very shocked. <laughs> you know, uh, I've had the chance to, it's been a great pleasure to interview a lot of presidents, current and former. And I, I recall vividly one of the most uh, remarkable interviews I did was in 2008. And it's a long story about how it all came together and who was in the room. But it was when I asked George W. Bush in a 45-minute interview among his biggest regrets, and his biggest regret was not fixing immigration. And the problem in 2008 was that Republicans in his own party did not want to provide, in essence, amnesty for those who were coming into this country. Keep in mind, Reagan put together a comprehensive immigration bill that did just that. It has to be a holistic solution. And so I think what the Biden White House said is, we'll give you some things. The, Demo the Republicans are saying, we don't need more money. We need to shut down the border. They're using it uh, as you know what the Trump campaign has been talking about. But here's the reality, that the Republicans can only lose two seats, and then they are in the minority. Yeah. The Democrats have a two-seat majority in the Senate. They've got to come together. The conservatives in the House, the Freedom Caucus, has got to be able to say, okay, we're going to get something now and hope for something in 2025 if Donald Trump is president. But there's no question. I mean, there's a reason why Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State and the Homeland Security Secretary in Mexico last week, they got to get this issue so that the American people feel that something is getting done. And look, I think you blame the Biden White House as well for not doing much more early. Remember, the person who was put in charge of this initially was Kamala Harris. And of course, that hasn't worked out well for her as well. But they, they're going to put some Band-Aids on the solution. We could be seeing a government shutdown. I hope not. Uh, but look, they're coming back next week. And then the following week, the Iowa caucuses and the deadline for the partial uh, agreement is January the 19th. The next deadline is February 2nd. So they don't have a whole lot of time to come together with something. And already Speaker Johnson has said he will not pass another short-term CR. That, of course, is what led to uh, Kevin McCarthy's ouster. Right. So, so again, it's 3D chess here. We've got 
We've got the issues of the debt seal. Well, the debt ceiling is taken care of till 2025, but we do have the budget issues. We've got the border issues, and we've got this uh, massive campaign where there's very little incentive to give the other side uh, any kind of love. And so it, yeah. it, it's remarkable. And oh, by the way, we have a $34 trillion national debt. Keep in mind, 40 years ago, it was a trillion dollars. We've gone from one to $34 trillion in four decades. Yeah, I read I read a story that we hit it in 2024, um, and the, the, the forecast was for 2029. We're six years ahead of hitting that number. And you know what's so amazing? Again, you were sitting at C-SPAN uh, when uh, when they balanced the budget in the year 2000. You know, when, when Clinton right. and uh, Newt Gingrich balanced the budget. And you're like, they didn't really like each other, but somehow they figured this out. What was what was the difference maker, do you think, back then? And remember the lockbox? Oh, what do yeah. you do with all this money? <laughs> well, he, the difference maker is that you had the Bush tax cuts – now, Republicans argue that they paid for themselves. Uh, I would disagree with that, but yeah. they did cut taxes significantly. You had 9-11. Then you had the war in Iraq. Then we had COVID under uh, under uh, Trump. And look, this is a pox on both parties. Right. Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden, they're all responsible for spending like drunken sailors. Here is the big challenge, that two-thirds of the debt, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, entitlements, and the budget, those are the drivers of the debt. The only way you're going to bring down, and, and Republicans hate it when I say this, but the only way you're going to bring down the national debt, number one, you've got to change long-term the entitlement system. You've got to take a holistic look at defense coming at a time when you have the situation in the Middle East and the war in Ukraine. You've got to look at revenue. And yes, you might have to raise taxes on wealthier Americans. The, the, the Trump tax cuts, by the way, coming up next year as well in 2025. So this could be another big debate that Congress is going to have to have. You know, what you're presupposing is people that are serious about governance. And I was listening to an earlier conversation, I think on this station, where they were talking about, you know what, people people join Congress to get clicks. I mean, I mean, the, the whole idea of uh, the fellow that they just booted out, you know, from New York, you know. George Santos. Santos. I mean, what was his whole deal uh, other than, and, 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 you know, Bobert is another one. They 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 want to get on Fox News. They want they want to get on media, and they want to have a big uh, Instagram following. And it's not serious. And, and these are serious times, don't you think, Steve Scully? They are. But like I said, for all of those, you know, and there there are a lot of them out there. The gadflies that are you know clickbait, and they're on Fox and Newsmax and One American News and MSNBC, and and yes, they drive the cycle. But there are also, you know, the Mike Kellys and the Don Bacons of the world and the Jim McGoverns of the world, members of Congress who are rolling up their sleeves and really trying to work out uh, a long-term solution. I will, I will say this, whether it's Donald Trump or it's Joe Biden in 2025, that is the year, next year is the year that if anything is going to be resolved long-term, it has to happen in 2025. If we're going to bring down the national debt, which we have to, if we're going to fix entitlement programs, which we have to, if we're going to deal with the Trump tax cuts, which are coming up next year, that's when we do it. Not an election year. If Biden is reelected, he doesn't have to worry about running for reelection. If Trump is elected, same thing. And one would hope that either one would have enough political courage to say, this is for the good of the country. Donald Trump understands, you know, 
the metrics in the economy and in and, and budget plans. So that's the year that is going to have to happen if it's going to happen. But he and this has been my point to a lot of my MAGA callers is he had a chance those first two years. And I know he got he had a lot of Democratic blowback, but he had the House, he had the Senate, he had the presidency. And they did nothing to bring down spending. They did. Exactly. He barely built the wall. It wasn't until, what was it, Ann Coulter called him on the carpet saying, hey, where's our wall? That uh, all of a sudden the wall became an issue, right? Yeah. Hey, Joel, so two days after the election, uh, I'll give you a little trivia because Stan was the first to call the election nationally. Wow. I was on with Bob Cusack of the Hill. It was about 1.47 in the morning, and they just nobody else was calling the election, and we knew right away. And so Bob said, Donald Trump is the 45th president of the United States. Fast forward two days later. I'm in, as, as they say here in Washington, we're part of the network pool. So I was part of the pool in the Oval Office as Barack Obama welcomed Donald Trump to the White House. Think about that. He was gracious in terms of welcoming the guy that he detested and never wanted to see president. And I'm looking at Donald Trump as part of the gaggle of reporters and photographers. He was in awe. He was in the Oval Office. And if you could just put a bubble above his head, he's like, I can't believe I'm going to be the next president of the United States. And I thought at that moment, that he is not an ideologue. I think he'd be the first to admit that. And that he had the chance to really bridge Democrats and Republicans like infrastructure to get some things done. Um, and I'll share with you a story about one of his many former chiefs of staff, uh, but one who had told me that he had asked him, Mr. President, if you just tone it down just a little, just just bring it down a little, and he kind of smirked and he goes, I just can't do that. And I think that's been one of the problems with Donald Trump because he he would have been reelected in 2020 had the COVID thing not erupted and he just let the scientists do what they're going to do. Instead, it just it got out of control for him. On the line with us is Steve Scully. He is the senior vice president for the Bipartisan Policy Center. And he's heard uh, every weekday on the POTUS channel on Sirius XM with the briefing with Steve Scully. Twelve o'clock Eastern. Right, Steve? 12 to 2 and a re-air 7 to 8 Eastern time. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And you said— 7 to 9. 7 to 9, 10 sorry. 10 to 9. You said you were, you were talking to uh, somebody from the Biden campaign today, and, and I, I had mentioned to you the idea of the being the economy stupid. You would think if, 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 that's, if that's the mantra, uh, the, and with the economy kind of coming in for a soft landing uh, with the inflation and, and interest rates, that— things would be looking up for uh, 46. What are, you, what are you hearing from the campaign? So let me go with the facts. The unemployment rate is at a record low. We'll get new numbers tomorrow. Interest rates have stabilized. Home mortgage rates have dipped to about 6.5 to 6.7%. Gas prices, not sure what they're like in Erie, but in some parts of the country, they're at or below $3 a gallon, higher in California. Grocery prices are still higher than they had been a year ago, but the economy, the stock market, all the numbers point to something very positive. I talked to Kevin Munoz, who was the chief spokesperson for the Biden campaign earlier today, and I said, so with all of that, people aren't feeling. And that's really the challenge that the Biden-Harris campaign is going to have to do. How can they better sell the message like Reagan did in 1984, Morning in America, but the real challenge is, we were speaking during the break, is that Joe Biden was the youngest senator at the age of 29, youngest elected back in 1972, wow. and now the oldest president. And so how do you 
generate excitement for an 81, 82 year old man who's running for reelection that, you know, God forbid he'll live for, you know, two full terms, but he would be 86 when he leaves office. And their argument is that just follow him just watch him listen to the message he's going to be in pennsylvania tomorrow outside of valley forge framing it on democracy and my question to kevin was okay well democracy is important but is that going to motivate voters to go to the polls because as you and i both know it is the economy stupid to quote james carville yeah. it's what elected bill clinton in 1992 and their contention is that voters are more holistic and they'll look at everything they'll look at the alternative if it is donald trump as we expect They'll look at the state of the country, which is getting better than it was four years ago. COVID is certainly on the decline. The economy is certainly better than it was two, three years ago. Um, and they'll look at Biden's record. But remember, and you know this better than anyone else, Joel, campaigns are always about the future. They're about tomorrow. And I think even Trump supporters would say, like Lindsey Graham, forget about 2000. Get over that. Yeah. Focus on 2024 and why you want to be elected. That's what's going to resonate as we move into the general election campaign in the fall. Let's let's break down this concept of of the idea that everybody I hear from from my MAGA callers are is that Trump is the only one that could do that could fix the country that could bring the country back to where we were pre pandemic or so on. Right. And mm -hmm. and. and and somehow since the summer when Ron DeSantis was surging in the polls, somehow we, we lost that concept that, you know what, Donald Trump can't win Pennsylvania because the polls are showing that Donald Trump can win Pennsylvania. This is how far President uh, Biden has come down in, in uh, public opinion. So I, I but I'm still questioning the concept of that that uh, those soccer moms in the collar counties of Philadelphia, hey, in Mill Creek and Harbor Creek and Erie, Pennsylvania, the you know, are they really going to vote for Trump? And secondly, are our young people once they see Trump on the ballot again, will they not be motivated like they were in 2020 to get out the vote for Biden? And and they'll have to hold their nose. Uh, but vote for Biden because they're so anti-Trump. I, I fi figure this yeah. out, you know. Well, let me answer this two different ways. When I teach a class, as I have over the years, I I always say I simplify it by saying the right candidate with the right message at the right time wins elections. Pretty obvious. So, who has the right message in 2024? It will depend in large part on the trajectory of the economy. It will depend on does Joe Biden stay healthy? Does he stumble? Does he have like a freeze moment like Mitch McConnell? What would that do? Can you imagine that playing out on Fox News and conservative media? That would be devastating to the Biden campaign. And then with Donald Trump, you have other unknown factors, such as four court cases that may or may not happen in 2024. And the looming issue of do people want to go back to the drama of what they saw four years ago? And there, there's an analogy that I have used and others have used as well, which is if Donald Trump is elected president in 2024, there were guardrails in 2016 through 2020, people who were in the administration that tried to kind of hold him back. He now has kind of peeled away from them. The guardrail, if you're traveling on I-79 in Erie and it's all mangled up, you hope that whoever hit the guardrail is safe. But what about the person who hits it the next time? Wow. What are the guardrails for 
America. And so it depends on how Trump is going to frame the campaign. I can tell you it's a much stronger organization in the MAGA world that Trump has than he ever had in 2016. More discipline, more fundraising, more uh, grassroots organization. Here's the big difference about 2024. Normally, you want to get after the swing voters. And that's always a factor in any election. You've got your solid support. And then how do you get another 10, 15, 20 percent? I think 2024 is going to be how do you motivate your base voters to get to the polls? That's what we're going to see from the Biden campaign. That is what the Trump campaign is all about, getting their base to the polls. I question whether Trump can win based on that. And to your point, the suburban moms, the Dobbs decision, the abortion issue, which is going to be a huge factor in 2024. And there are now about a dozen states, including battleground states, that will have abortion as a referendum on the ballot. You know that that's going to motivate voters. Keep in mind in Ohio, right next door, that Donald Trump won Ohio by 14 points, but the referendum on abortion, which you could say is a Democratic referendum, won in Ohio by seven percentage points. So there's a lot of unknown variables. We are embarking on an election year that we've never seen before. This is going to be a an election for the record books. People say it every four years, but for all of the uh, obvious things that we're talking about, um, buckle up. It, it it it's so true because you, you're because my strategic mind is saying I would think that we would go with someone that would be more acceptable to that kind of that middle to that independent but you're saying this is going to be a base election I think that's probably the first time I've heard that well yeah I mean if Nikki Haley is the nominee which is unlikely but look anything can happen then it's a very different campaign or Ron DeSantis. But if it's a rematch of Trump versus Biden, and as Biden has always said, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. Um, you know, having lived through and covered January 6th, I thought, okay, this, this is it for Trump. This is going to be the one thing that is going to turn the page and the Republicans will move on to somebody else. Well, I was wrong. I was wrong when Donald Trump came down the escalator in 2015, thinking there's no way that the party is going to nominate this person who has no experience at all. I mean, zero experience, both military and uh, political. And yet I was wrong about that. But I'll tell you when I thought, OK, Donald Trump can win this election. The Access Hollywood video back in 2016, we all remember what happened. You know, the upheaval. He was asked to leave the election. A few days later, I'm in St. Louis for one of the presidential debates. And Donald Trump had organized Paula Jones, Juanita Broderick, and others to come into the debate hall, right. almost facing Bill Clinton. And I thought, this guy, if you give him a punch, he's going to counterpunch even harder. And he was able to turn the, the tables. And then as I'm traveling in 2016 in rural Virginia and in Pittsburgh and in Detroit and in Cleveland, seeing all the Trump signs and the Trump supporters, I thought, this guy has capitalized on something. And everyone kept saying, there's no way he can win. And I said, he can win. And of course, we know what happened. Talk to me about mail-in ballots here in Pennsylvania. Um, our m most recent uh, municipal election was like a four to one uh, Democrat using mails uh, to the re to the Republicans. Uh, obviously, there's more Republican adoption of the mail-in ballots, but not nearly as much. And again, that's for that low propensity voter um, that you're trying you're trying to kind of 
scratch for every little vote and, and maybe get them a mail-in ballot. Do you think that they'll be consequential in 2024? Well, finally, Pennsylvania has moved into the 21st century because the Keystone State has been kind of a backwater when it yeah. comes to, to early voting. Uh, look, Republicans have realized that they can't if, if you can't beat them, join them. Right. Right. And so Republicans know they also have to bank the votes. They have been counting on their voters to get out of the polls on Election Day. Democrats have been very smart in most states to get them out. COVID, of course, was a defining factor in 2020, which is why they had to do just that. So I think Republicans are going to, to join the bandwagon, even though Donald Trump says he wants to make sure that elections are held one day. Somebody needs to remind him that the states, not the federal government, dictate right. elections and how it works. So I think what we're going to see is a big push in the fall for early voting that could begin as early as late September, um, which is a little bit dangerous because so much can happen in October. I'm old enough to remember what happened in 1980 between Reagan and Carter. And it was that last debate a week before the election, by the way, just down the road in Cleveland, that turned the tide that led to Reagan winning 50 or 46 states or 44 states yeah. and Carter won six or eight, uh, a landslide for Ronald Reagan. But that only came in the last week to 10 days of the election. Yeah, it, we had that in 2022 where um, people were voting early. They saw the debate between Dr. Oz and uh, Senator Fetterman, and they're like, oh, crap, basically. I voted for Fetterman, and I'm not sure I should have because yeah, they didn't realize no. how, how – now he seems to be on the mend, and boy, is he is he turning uh, heads in D.C. Boy, I'll say, oh my gosh! And uh, don't tell that to Bob Menendez. He he wants him out of office. But yeah, no, he's. Um, yeah. And thankfully, look, I've had family members who have had strokes, um, yeah. and uh, I, I'm glad to see him come back. You want a fully functioning senator, and you can agree or disagree with John Fetterman, but you want him to be able to to do the job, and uh, you know, good for him. Let's take a minute on Casey, and obviously it looks like it's going to be McCormick. Um, Bob Casey is not seen a lot around uh, these parts. I have um, heard that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm trying to figure that out. You know, we're in an election year. I've seen him once. I mean, I've been on the air for five years, seen him once. And so trying to figure out whether or not this – you're saying that this could be the bellwether Senate race of the entire nation. Well, I think if you look at it objectively, uh, you have a U.S. senator in Bob Casey who's been in office and has a long lineage. Uh, I covered his father when I was a reporter at WSCE in Erie, when, when Bob Casey Sr. was the governor of Pennsylvania. <clears throat> and I remember what happened in the 92 convention on the whole abortion debate. So, look, people know Bob Casey, uh, and he does need to get out there and campaign if you want to want, run for re-election. Uh, Dave McCormick is kind of a blank slate. But he is, you know, attractive. He's got money. He's going to have organization, and it's a state that could be flipped either way. So I think that uh, you got to earn the votes, as I think Casey's going to know he's know he needs to do, and Dave McCormick is going to have the resources and the money and the message to do very well because Pennsylvania, West Virginia, West Virginia's lost to the Democrats, so they're going to lose that state. Ohio, Montana, Arizona. I mean, it is a really, really tough map for the Democrats going into twenty twenty four. It looks better for the Democrats in the House because, again, keep in mind, a couple of the seats in upstate New York may very well right. be flipped back to the Democrats. So we could see the House potentially become Democrat, the Senate become Republican by a narrow majority, one, two, three seats, and then the White House. At this point, I still think it's a jump ball. Either candidate can win. It's only early January. A lot, and I mean a lot, can happen between now and November. 
Only got a minute left with Steve Scully here from C-SPAN and the Bipartisan Policy Center. Steve, uh, again, lay it out for us what you think, um, uh, you know, does the primary, is the primary consequential number one in Pennsylvania or are we way too no. late? We're way too no. late. No, okay. way too late. Uh, so, so in earnest, after we have the, uh, the, the convention or probably way well before the convention, we're talking about, we're going to get a ton of ads and a ton of campaigning. You, when you think? Oh, I think you're going to see all of the candidates uh, crisscross Pennsylvania. I think Erie is going to be a really important uh, marker for the candidates. It's why Donald Trump was there last summer. It's why I think you'll see the president, the vice president, others campaign extensively across Western Pennsylvania. And the Senate race is going to be equally as important because, as I mentioned, if they're going to lose states like uh, West Virginia maybe Ohio or Montana. Again, those are tough races, but they, the Democrats could win. They need to keep Pennsylvania. Bob Casey needs to hold that seat. So it's going to be it's 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 going to be called the Keystone State for a reason in 2024. Let me leave it with that point. I appreciate it. Steve Scully here. Thank you so, so much. Thank and, you, Joel. Uh, I can't wait to our next conversation, sir. Anytime. Hello to all my friends in Erie. Love you. You've been listening to The Joel Natale Show, Erie, Pennsylvania's daily podcast from TalkErie.com. Subscribe to our show on your favorite podcatcher and get involved by emailing joel at TalkErie.com. <laughs>